0: Today, I want to talk to you today about turning points. Turning points. A turning point is when the trajectory of your life shifts and completely changes from one direction to another. It's when how you live, how you think, what you think is possible completely changes. We've experienced many turning points throughout modern history. One of the most recent ones was the introduction of the iPhone. I went and watched the keynote address when the iPhone was first announced. This was in 2007, not too long ago. But back then, right, Steve Jobs walked up on stage and he said this, for the first time ever, you are gonna have a device that combines the three functionalities of a phone, a music player, and an internet browser. And the crowd went, whoa, right? For us, it's like, What are you talking about? That is, of course, we have a device like that. But you've got to understand, at that point, we had no such device like that. You either had a phone, a music player, or an internet browser. The iPhone was the first device ever to combine all three into one, and it's changed how we live forever. Now, it is impossible to conceive of a phone without a screen that covers the entire face of the phone, right? It's impossible for us to conceive of a phone that has more than one button. My phone doesn't even have a button, right? It's impossible, now this is status quo. Now this is what is considered normal. That's what turning points do. Turning points redefine what is normal, what is expected. Why am I telling you about this? Because the passage today that we're gonna read is about the birth of the Antioch church. The birth of the Antioch church marks a turning point in the growth and movement of the church and the gospel. And I'm not exaggerating. I'm actually not exaggerating. I'm actually trying to paint you a picture and try to accurately depict to you how monumental this church, the birth of this church was. Because the church of Antioch becomes the sending point for all the future mission work by Paul and Barnabas and other, um, other people. Okay, the, you, we will see the shift in the focus of Acts shift from Jerusalem and Peter to Paul and Antioch. We're gonna see Jerusalem start to fade into the distance and Antioch start to rise in prominence. Why? It's not that Jerusalem doesn't matter anymore. No, it's not at all. But rather that Antioch becomes the strategic hub of gospel outreach. Prior to Acts chapter 11, the gospel has been going out from Jerusalem. If you drew arrows of how the gospel has been spreading, Draw it all from Jerusalem. Now, after Acts 11, draw the arrows from Antioch. The gospel is starting to go up from Antioch. And that's how monumental a shift this is. So we gotta pay attention to what actually happened when this church started. What caused it? What caused this major turning point? That's what I want us to explore today. So Acts chapter 11, verse 19 to 30. Acts 11, verse 19 to 30, it says this. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the spirit predicted a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are. whenever we encounter you, you do something in us. You create turning points in our lives. You create turning points in our communities, in our churches. So Lord, I pray speak O lord i pray that we would encounter you we would hear your voice and that lord you would create a turning point in our lives today so lord or make us into a turning uh, a turning point maker i pray so lord reveal yourself reveal the truth in your word and may it sit powerfully upon our hearts and minds in jesus name we pray Amen. amen okay so let's put things into perspective just for a moment so by the time we get to Acts eleven, it's been about ten years. We we read one line. This happened during the reign of Emperor Claudius. Okay, so it's probably ten years since the day of uh, of Pentecost in Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two. For us, we covered Acts chapter two a few weeks ago. But for them, this happened ten years ago. Okay. Now we get into Acts chapter eleven. And during these ten years, the gospel has been on the move. Okay. So Acts chapter two. Do you see it, I? Yeah, Matt. Okay, cool. So Acts chapter two, the the church was birthed in Jerusalem. After that, one major thing happens, Acts chapter seven, Stephen is killed for the gospel, for Christ, okay? And this sparks a great persecution that spreads across the entire church and the Christians scatter. They leave Jerusalem and we read that they go to Samaria and the gospel goes to Samaria and the church is birthed in Samaria. That's what we read about in Acts chapter eight. Now, meanwhile, Saul is persecuting the church. He is the the harbinger of persecution to the Christian church. Now, in Acts chapter 9, he encounters Christ in such a powerful way that he, persecutor of Christ, is converted to apostle of Christ, okay? Well, to, to defender of Christ. And so he is now saved. Now, at this point, you've got to understand that the gospel has only been preached to the Jews. So. The only people that are part of the church are Jewish people, okay? So by and large, right, if you were to look at the church at that point in history, before Acts chapter 10, you would conclude that, well, this is a part of Judaism, right? All the people here are Jews. You could mistake it to be just an offshoot of Judaism, okay? Once Acts chapter 10 hits, which we covered last week, Peter has a massive encounter with the Lord and he is convicted that the Gentiles should also be included in the church as well. And so he ministers to Cornelius, a Gentile, uh, a Gentile person, and his entire family is saved, <clears throat> okay? Almost concurrently, but well, we don't know when, but at another place, at another time, Acts chapter 11 happens, okay? Well, when Acts chapter, 11, Acts chapter 10 depicts and shows that, well, Peter, the apostle, the head of the church, validates Gentile inclusion, Acts chapter 11 shows us the actual birth of the Gentile church. In Acts chapter 11, what do you see? That the gospel not only has reached Samaria, Jerusalem, but also all the way to Antioch. Do you see that? Yes, in the next, in the next map. Yes, so, so you see here, right? And the reason why I'm showing you this map, and I insisted on this map, right? is because I want you to see how far the gospel has spread. You see the blue thing there? That's the Mediterranean Sea. So Jerusalem's all the way down south. Antioch's all the way up north, okay? The the gospel has spread all the way up there. It is so far away from Jerusalem. That's pretty much all I want you to know, okay? It's very far away. But the disciples, when they got to Antioch, they started preaching to the Gentiles as well. Well, actually, we read that they preach to the Jews only, but some, some preach to the Gentiles, the non-Jews as well. And one of the major turning points that happens at Antioch that we read about is the birth of the Christian church. The birth of the Christian church. Verse 26, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Major turning point. Because before this, remember, it's not known as a Christian church. The church is probably known as a Jewish church, a church full of Jews, or a Judaistic offshoot of the Judaistic faith. But this is the first time ever that the church is labeled as a Christian church. Christian, the word Christian simply means to belong to the party of Christ. They experienced a label change. Now, why is this so insignificant? Why are you making such a big deal out of this? Because, because, Labels show us what is the most obvious characteristic that people associate with a group. And the fact that the church has experienced a label change is sending us massive signals that something amazing is happening in the church. Now, let me talk to you about labels for a moment. We generally do not like labels. In our social context, we do not like labels, right? Because labels usually are misrepresentative, they almost, often they betray unfair and premature judgments upon people or upon people groups. And oftentimes they are inaccurate. However, what labels do, do, and they are natural, It's not only natural for us to instinctively and naturally label a group of people, is that they highlight the most obvious characteristic that we associate with that group. For example, I went to Williton Senior High School, right? Any Willow students in the house? Things have fallen. Anyway, <laughs> back then, it was awesome, all right? I loved Willow. And when you got to year 12, I don't know if this is still the case in Willow, but when you got to year 12, you got some perks. You got a special badge that allowed you to go outside of the school. This is awesome. No other kid could go outside to go. Every kid would be playing around the playground, and then you would walk out the gate. Just flash the badge and walk out the gate and go to Southlands. That was an awesome feeling. We were special. We're year 12s. The other thing you got to do was that you got to apply to have a classroom assigned to your group so that that classroom became yours during breaks. No one else could go into that classroom except your group. Is that still the case now? Is that the I don't know. Okay, all right. <laughs> um, but that was the case back then, right? And it was so cool. I remember we were all gathered in F Block. I'm not sure if that's called that now, but F-Block. And F-Block became, ended up happening having its own ecosystem, where every, every room had its own culture and climate. So you had the chess club room where you guessed it, you went there to play chess. Every time I would go there, people would be playing chess, eating lunch and playing chess, or watching people play chess. That's all you did at that room. You had the sports club room where, you guessed it, it was empty <laughs> because people were always out there playing sports. And then you had four rooms, I remember, all in a row that was known as the Asian Quarter. It wasn't, it wasn't. But, but it might as well have been known as the Asian Quarter because two rooms were full of Asian boys, two rooms were full of Asian girls, okay? And you can guess where I was. Sports Club room. No, 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 I was in Asian Asian room two, right? And, um, and why, what, was, that, was, that lab, was that label accurate? Actually, it very, very much was. Although there was an Indian there as well. But I suppose Indians are Asians too, right? Um, but these labels that people put on us, right? And we all use these labels. Oh, that room's this, that room's that, right? It pretty much highlighted to us the most obvious characteristic that we would associate with that group. So F12 had a bunch of Asian boys, therefore, That's the Asian boy room. That's the label, the most obvious characteristic that people would associate with us. Okay, so, the first time the church has the label changes at Antioch, and they are called now the Christian church. That means that the most obvious characteristic that people will associate with the church is no longer that they are Jews, It's no longer that they dress a certain way. It's no longer that they all talk a certain way. It's that they all believe in Jesus Christ. That the one most single, primary, most obvious characteristic that people would look at that group and go, how do we categorize that group? The one most obvious characteristic was, that group follows Jesus. Do you see how amazing that is? And that got me thinking, what is the most obvious characteristic that people would associate with us? Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not talking about you as an individual. That's a good question, but it's not the question I'm asking. I'm talking about as a group, as a group. Whenever we gather as a church, or whenever you gather as a small group, what's the most obvious characteristic that people would associate with you? What is the label people would put on you, on your group? Would it be that you are the cool church? That you're the group with the good food? That you're the nice group? That you're the big church? What label would people put on us, put on you? Now, these labels are not necessarily bad. Like, if you're known as the cool group, that's not bad. If you're known as the nice group, that's also not bad either, and it's not, inaccurate to say that we are a big church. These labels aren't bad. However, if that is the most obvious characteristic that people would associate with us, is that a problem? Is it a problem if when people come to your group, the most obvious characteristic that they would put on you is that you're simply nice? Are you satisfied with that? What makes us distinctly, undeniably Christian? What would shift us? What would cause that shift from simply nice to Christian? From, from simply kind to Christian? What makes that shift? I think it is when we faithfully live out the kind of life Christ has called us to live. Now that. You might see, think, duh, of course. But hold on, let me explain to you, right? Because see, Jesus doesn't just call us to be nice people. There are many nice people all around the world, okay? You go to your local store, you're going to be treated nicely. I'm hoping so, right? Especially in Australia, right? You're going to be treated nicely. So, but that doesn't make us Christian. No. What Christ has called us to do is to be not just be nice, but to be enemy loving nice. To be nice and loving to those who are unlovable and to those who are unloving. When we are that kind of nice, when we are that kind of kind, when we're that kind of loving, oh, that notches us up and that makes us undeniably Christian. Because no other group will be like that. What makes us It's not enough for us to just be good. Because many groups, many charities, many places are good places. They're good, full of good people. What makes the church distinct and undeniably Christian is when we are perfect, holy, and righteous, because that is who Christ is. When we are like Him, when we take the word of God and we go, okay, how am I gonna faithfully live this out to its extreme, to its maximum? Not just diluting it to what is comfortable, what is possible, but going, okay, this is how what Christ has commanded us to do. I'm gonna do that. When we do that, that's what makes us undeniably Christian. Because when Barnabas visited the church, what did he see? He saw the grace, of God, and he concluded God is at work here. Church, when people come to our gathering, do they conclude that the grace of God is at work in this place? Because when we are supernaturally generous, when we're self-sacrificially generous, when we are enemy-loving nice and loving, When we obey Christ to his absolute maximum, that's when people can only conclude that this cannot be humanly orchestrated. This cannot be humanly manufactured. They can't just pretend to be this nice. No, something is at work here. There's a power at work here that we cannot explain except to say that it's only by the grace of God. And that is what makes us undeniably Christian. And when we are all operating in this way, the one label that people use for us would be, hey, that is a Christian church. Yeah. Do you want that? Yes. The group here wants that. Do you want that? Yes. When that happens, something's going to happen. A turning point's going to happen in our city. And it takes all of us that are part of this church, to be fueled and connected to the Holy Spirit, that He bursts that in us and He creates that life change within us. And that's only possible. When we're all operating by the power of the Holy Spirit because it's not possible by our own strength, right? You can't, you can't do it. You can't, you, what is only possible with God is not possible with you. So you need the Holy Spirit to be in you, to work through you, to be filling you up so much that you are enemy-loving nice. that you are self-sacrificially generous, that you are good, that you are perfect, that you are holy, not by your own strength, but by the grace of God. When we gather, may we be a Christian church. That's the first turning point that we see. The second turning point is the unity of the global church. The unity of the global church. Now, as you saw on the map, the church has grown is no longer confined to one localized location or geographical region, It is now spread across a far stretch and a a, a big expanse of land, okay? And there's two really important things happening in this global movement of the spirit and the gospel. The first concerns Paul and Barnabas, all then known as Saul and Barnabas. Verse 25, 26. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. This is really important because this is the the starting point of Paul and Barnabas' ministry to the Gentiles. A few chapters later, we will see that the, the, the apostles set aside Paul and Barnabas for the specific ministry of ministering to the Gentile church. But it starts... Here, this moment is monumental for Saul and Barnabas, or then to be known as Paul and Barnabas. The second thing that we see is the unity of the church through the generosity of the church. Now, this is nothing new to us. If you've been following with us through the book of Acts, every time the church is born, we see that generosity is one of the hallmarks of the church. They They give sacrificially of everything that they have to give to those who are in need. But so far, it's always been to bless and meet the needs of their local context, of their immediate community. This is the first time ever that the church meets a need to another congregation far removed from them. If I can put it, and this response is actually quite strange if you spend some time thinking about it. For example, let me put it this way. If one of your family members needed help, If one of your family members needed help, your parent, brother, sister, if they needed help, would you help them? Would you help them? Depends, right? Depends on what they're asking for. Let's just say they're asking for something that you you can meet. You can help them. You have the resources. You have the ability to help them. Would you help them? Of course you would. You would help them because they're family. They're family, right? Even if you don't really like them, you would try to help them, okay? Now let's just say it, they, this family member um, is another part of the world. Say they're in Canada, right? really far away, but they text you or they contact you and they go, hey, I really need help. Would you help them? Again, depends on the nature of, the, of what they're asking for, but if you had the ability, if you had the resources to do so, you would probably help them. Why? Because they're family. Because It doesn't matter where your family is around the world, they're still your family. Okay, now let me change this now just a little bit more. Let's just say this is a distant uncle or cousin that you've never met before in Canada. And they text you and go, hey, I need a hundred bucks. I really need it, bro. Would you help me? Would you help them? They're your family, technically. Would you help them? Now I know we're all in church, so we have to go, of course I would, you know, so I'm so sure. So, so. But in reality, right? Would you really help them? Uh, I think twice, I'd be like, hey, where's your, your dad? Like, <laughs> you ask your dad first before me, who am I to you, right? And why, why? They're still your family, but you never met them before. Why would you help them? You have no affinity for them, okay? Okay, that, It's a situation for the Antioch church. The Jerusalem church is their family, yes, but they've never met them in their life. All they know about them is that they're in Jerusalem and probably what Barnabas has told them about them. That's it. They've heard of them, they do not know them. Yet their response, the moment that they hear from Agabus that there's a need, that the family's gonna hit the region, they're gonna be in need, what is their response? Hey, let's pull our resources together and give it to them so that they will have enough. What a strange response. My point is, that is not a natural response. That is not a natural human response. That is a supernatural response. That That kind of level of generosity is only possible when the Holy Spirit bursts within us a connection between our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's only possible. In this church, this large, many of us do not know one another personally. But when the Holy Spirit grips us and fills us and connects us, it bursts within us an affinity for one another that because you believe in Christ and I believe in Christ, because you have the Spirit and I have the Spirit, we are family, we are one. And that creates generosity and love that is supernatural. Supernatural. That creates unity. And when I think about our church, Faith Community Church, I actually am very proud of us because I think we have semblances of this. I think many of us get this, that when there is a real need in the church, we rise up immediately. Not all of us, Quite a few of us. For example, I remember when Compassion came, Compassion Australia came and shared the need, the great need of many children in the poorest countries in the world, in the poorest families in the world, and how our little contribution every month can make a life-changing difference, can, make, can bring turning points in their lives. So many of us rose to the occasion. There was a queue I'm not even kidding. If you were there, you would know this. There was a queue outside of the compassion booth with people trying to find a card of a child that they could sponsor. Many people walked away with multiple children that they would sponsor. Maybe some of you, you are sponsoring multiple children. I'm so proud that we ended up sponsoring like over 300 children or something crazy like that. That's incredible. Just because you heard of a need in some way, you don't know these children. You don't know these families, but there's something in you that went, I can do something about this. I am gonna do something about this. That's supernatural. I remember when Pastor Benny on Sunday, he shared about a ministry that this group of people were doing um, for um, war-torn Ukraine, that some kids who were displaced by the war lost everything. This ministry was creating toys for them um, that would be able to um, share with them, share with the children, and whenever you press the button, it would, it would uh, share a, a Bible verse, and it, that would give them hope and encouragement and, and life. And when it wasn't even the point of Pastor Benny's message. Okay? He wasn't calling for anything, he wasn't calling for donations, anything like that. But during the week, we had people writing to us, calling us, asking, how can I give to this ministry? I want to give to this ministry. I definitely want to give to this ministry. How can I do so? So many calls, so many, so many contacts that we got throughout the week. Church, I think some of us at least get this, that there's this generosity and this love that is birthed within us whenever we hear about a need. So I don't think there's really much of a challenge I need to give to us about this, except to say that for many of us, our problem is not the desire to meet the need, our our problem, if any, is that we are blind to the needs of the global church. Therefore, many of us, we are unaware of what is actually happening out there beyond Perth or Australia. And so much is happening throughout the world. God is doing so many things. There's so many needs throughout the world. And so my encouragement to us, if anything, is to not lean into ignorance, but lean into awareness and to become more informed, more aware of what God is doing. So sign up, subscribe to things like Open Doors, right, where, they, where you get news and updates of what's happening in the church, especially the persecuted church. So you can start praying, you can start participating in what God is doing in those regions. Bible Society is another, that they're engaging in getting the Bibles and teaching and the Word of God to the, some regions that it's illegal to do so. Engage with that, my, my dad's part of it, you can come to the crib counter. And I don't mean to plug these ones, this is just the ones I know, I know there's so many. Google you know, Global Church or whatever, it's, I don't know. Just search for it, I'm sure you'll be able to find ministries, parachurch organizations that are doing great work out there. And my encouragement to us is to not use ignorance as an excuse, but to lean into awareness. And you go, okay, what is God doing? How can I participate in what God is doing? How can I at least pray and partner with the Holy Spirit in what He's doing elsewhere outside of the four walls of Perth, Australia? And nothing we can do is simply go on a short-term mission trip, because when you go on a short-term mission trip, you're going to experience firsthand what God is doing elsewhere in the world. And that can be an awesome, eye-opening experience for you. So many things, you can do, we can do to foster this unity of the global church that began at Antioch. Second turning point. The third turning point is the bold obedience of some. The bold obedience of some. We covered massive turning points happened at Antioch. The church of Antioch was born and this sparked a major turning point in the movement of the global church. But what caused all this? Where did it all start? Verse 19 and 21. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. The monumental shifts that happened at Antioch were started by some unnamed, unknown believers who decided to not just share the gospel with Jews, which was the norm. That was normal. But some chose to share it with those who are not Jewish as, well, I must emphasize this point: that what the sum did, the some unnamed sum, did, was not normal. It was not conventional, because you've got to understand that so far, the only people in the church are Jews. Gentiles do not exist in the church. So what are these people doing preaching the gospel to the Gentiles? This has never been done before. Never been done before. They're doing something that has been unheard of. And by the way, they don't know what God's been doing in Peter's life in Acts chapter 10. They have no idea about that. So why are they preaching to the Gentiles when most of the believers preach the gospel to the Jews only? Now, was preaching to the Jews Wrong? No, it was not wrong at all. They were being obedient to the Lord preaching the gospel, to being a witness of the gospel. That was not wrong. But some of them were willing to take a bold step of obedience to step outside what was considered normal to bring Christ to those who are considered unreachable. I believe turning points are not won by people doing what has always been done turning points are when people do something that has never been done before when believers come under the power and submission of the holy spirit of god there are going to be times when he causes to do things that are not normal that are outside of what is considered conventional now i am not saying i need to clarify this i'm not saying that obedience to God means doing something unconventional and what's not normal, right? It's not unconventional that saves people, right? Because it's not that we think, okay, so what is the most unconventional thing I could do? Pat people on the head with the Bible, right? That's the most, that's not normal. People don't usually do that, but that's not going to save people, right? Probably not going to save people, all right? Um, So it's not just innovation that saves people. It's not just doing something different that saves people, no. It's when you are so obedient to the Lord that you are willing to do whatever it takes, even if it's outside of what's considered normal. That is what creates turning points in people's lives, in families, in communities, in organizations. And see what Acts chapter 11 verse 21 says. It says, the Lord's hand was with them. If the, if the Lord wasn't blessing them, these some could have preached to kingdom come and nothing would have happened. But it's because the Lord was with them that great numbers of people were added to the church. It is the Lord that brings transformation. It's the Lord that brings salvation. It's the Lord that brings turning points and life transformation in people's lives. And it's when we are partnered up with the Lord so closely, uh, we, we're willing to do whatever He tells us to do. That's what creates turning points in people's lives. And it takes, it takes obedience, yes, but it also takes a bit of boldness, a bit of boldness to do so. For example, you feel this strong sense as you're talking to your colleague to share about the goodness of the Lord that you've experienced with your colleague. Does that take boldness? Yes, it does. If you've ever been in that situation before, it takes a lot of boldness to switch that conversation from the weekend to God's goodness, right? That takes boldness. But when you step out in boldness, in bold obedience, know that the Lord's hand is with you and you are being a catalyst for a turning point in that person's life. As you're talking with your friend, they share a need with you. Does it take boldness to pray for that friend, as someone who's been in that position before? Yes, it takes a lot of boldness to say, hey, can I just pray for you? Can I just pray for your family? Can I pray for that situation that you're going through? That takes boldness, bold obedience. But you are, when you do that, when you step out of bold obedience, you are being used in the hand of an almighty God to bring a turning point in that person's life. If you feel a growing sense that you should do something in your school, your workplace, your family, maybe you're the only Christian in your family, does it take bold obedience to step out in faith to do so? Absolutely, it takes bold obedience to start a prayer group in your workplace, absolutely. But know that the Lord's hand is with you. It's the bold obedience of the some, some, some believers who are willing to step out in faith, knowing that, trusting that God is with them. This is what leads to turning points in people's lives, communities, families, and institutions. And this is what the sum did at Antioch. You know, I love that we know very little about these disciples. All we know about them is that they were from Cyprus and Cyrene, that's it. I love that it wasn't one of the the apostles, one of the famous ones, that brought the gospel to Antioch and boom, the church was born. It It wasn't Paul or Barnabas that brought the gospel to the Gentiles barnabas only validated what they did he only saw what they did after it was done it wasn't them that caused this this huge turning point in the church no it was some unnamed unknown believers who you will never know the names of they simply stepped down in faith and went i'm gonna do i'm gonna be boldly obedient to the lord and i love it because so many of us will be unnamed unknown believers that history will never write about You will never be retweeted. You will never be celebrated in a sermon. You will never have a huge following on Instagram. You will never be considered an influencer. You will never be a celebrity. You'll never go around in history books. You'll be unnamed, unknown, unfamous, but you can be a catalyst for turning points in people's lives, in nations, in communities, in schools. If you're willing to be considered among the some that want to be boldly obedient to the Lord. It's the bold obedience of the sum that creates turning points. And it wasn't a massive strategy meaning that has led to the disciples going to Antioch, right? It, wasn't, it was just a move of the Holy Spirit. A lot of the big things, a lot of the revivals, a lot of the great missionary journeys that have happened in the world have not been a great orchestration by a group of, of people coming together and going, hey, we're going to do this and that, and God's going to do this and that. No, it's simply people going, God needs me to do this. I'm going to do it. I'm gonna do it. Everyone says it can't be done. I'm gonna do it because God has convicted me that this must be done. This must be done. You may never be acknowledged for what you do. You may be never acknowledged for sharing the gospel with your colleague, with your friends. You may never be acknowledged for simply praying for your children day after day. You may never be acknowledged for for that, but your obedience, you never know what God is going to do with your simple, bold obedience. I want to share with you, as I end, a story that I was told by a school chaplain. Um, He told me of one student um, that he met that was suicidal. He had tried to take his life on multiple, multiple occasions. And um, it got to the point where the principal, even the psychologist, didn't want to have anything to do with him, right? So he just palmed him off to the chaplain and go, hey, you take care of him. You know, you just chat with him. The chaplain did. He chatted with this boy. And after some ch- chatting with this boy, and this boy was a teenager, to put things into perspective, he began talking with him about spirituality. He began asking him, so, you know, um, what do you believe about spirituality, about spiritual things? And he learned that the boy believed in God. He believed that there was a God. He believed that, Satan was real, but he believed that Satan had got a bad rap. He wasn't that bad a guy, so raised a few eyebrows. But then he asked him, okay, so have you spoken to any of these spiritual beings? And the boy said, yes, I've spoken to the Grim Reaper. That was concerning. And you gotta understand that this boy tried to take his life on multiple occasions. His his drawings and artwork was very dark and, and disturbing. Um, And as you continue talking, you've got to understand with the chaplain, being a chaplain, you've got to be careful with these things, certain boundaries and rules you can't cross. So he was carefully talking, trying to be careful how he approached this topic. But he got to the point where he said, Hey, have you ever talked to God before? And the boy said, No. And I went, Okay, do you want to talk to God? And the boy said, Yes. And so the chaplain, taking a step of bold obedience Simply led the boy in a prayer. He didn't do anything spectacular, okay? He just, he didn't lay hands on him. He just led the boy in a simple prayer. And immediately, the Holy Spirit falls on the boy and the boy exclaims, a weight has been lifted off my shoulders. A weight has been lifted off my shoulders. And the chaplain's like, whoa there, okay. I know you're really excited and he's, you see hes a chaplain, he knows what emotional excitement can do to people, okay? How it can fizzle out really quickly. So he's trying to calm down the boy down and go, okay, 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 great. That's awesome, dude. Awesome. How about we meet back on Monday and, um, and, and we talk about what's happened? It's like, yeah, okay, okay, but you gotta understand. Uh, wait, it's been lifted off my shoulders. Like, okay, cool, cool, cool. And he goes back home. Monday, he rushes in to the chaplain's office first thing in the morning and he goes, a weight has been lifted off my shoulders. You do not understand, my life is never the same again. This boy then goes tells his friend about Jesus, who then gets saved, right? This boy never tries to commit suicide ever again. He gets saved, his friend gets saved, they join a youth group, right? After two years of ministering in that school, the chaplain sees 60 kids give their lives to the Lord. 60 kids, six zero. That's incredible. And this boy that was once suicidal is now to this day a youth leader in his church, in his local church. Why did that start? It started with simply the bold obedience of one unnamed, unknown, unfamous chaplain that simply went, I am going to spend some time talking to someone that the world has given up on. And I'm going to see what God does. I'm going to see what God does. That is the bold obedience of the sum. So church, can I get every head bowed, every eyes closed as we end, even if you're online or at city campus, if you want to be considered among the sum, that are going to step out in bold obedience. I want you to stand up and I want to pray for you. I want you to stand up and I want to pray for you that God will release you to bring turning points in people's lives. If that is you, just stand up. This is between you and God. When you stand up, you are saying, count me among the psalm. Count me among the psalm that are going to take what God is doing and wants to do through me, and I'm going to be obedient even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's different, even if it's unconventional, count me in. That is you. You stand up. You stand up. Count this as your first step in bold obedience. The city campus, you stand up too. Online, wherever you are, you lift up your hands. If if you're able to, stand up. If you're on the train, stand up, If if it's safe to do so, right? You respond in some way to the Lord. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, it is the bold obedience of disciples that creates turning points, that brings revivals, that brings your gospel to places that it has never been before. It takes it to people that people consider unreachable. It takes it to places where it is the most dark. And Lord, I pray those who are standing, those who are responding online, those who are responding in City Campus, those who are responding in Wilson. I pray, oh God, that you see the bold obedience right now. You see their willingness. You see the willingness to at least go, I want to do this. I may be scared. I may not know what that means, but I want to be counted among the some. That in heaven, I want to be counted among the some that took that bold step of obedience today. So Lord, I pray that you take their their willingness today and you set it on fire and make it a roaring flame of conviction, O Lord. And you send them out, O God. That I pray, Holy Spirit, you come and fill them even now. And that, Lord, I pray that as you direct, they will go. As you direct, they will go, O Lord, whatever it is. Even if it's a little bit unconventional, they will do it because they trust that you are with them. When you sent out the disciples in Matthew chapter 28, you said, all authority has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Knowing, know that I am with you. Jesus is with you to the very end of the age. Go now in the power, might, and presence of the Lord Jesus. It is him who has your back and it's he that will work through you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.